0: Welcome to this very special event this evening with two of our most favourite writers and thinkers about science and the environment, Elizabeth Colbert and David Wallace Wells. And it is 5x15's great honour to be able to bring them together for this conversation. And I think it's the first conversation that they have had together. So we are really very lucky. Elizabeth Colbert has been a staff writer at The New Yorker for over 20 years, and her book, The Sixth Extinction, was an international bestseller, which was a winner of the 2015 Pulitzer Prize and was hailed by everyone from Barack Obama to Al Gore to Bill Gates. And it was really a talismanic book for people who were concerned about the environment and the fate of our planet. And now we're very glad that she's back with a new book which is called Under a White Sky and which we are here to hear about and discuss further this evening. It's an urgent exploration of humanity's impact on nature and the world around us. And it's an exploration into the scientific discoveries and innovations that could help us still to avert disaster and to reverse some of the damage that we've already done. It's out this week in the UK and available from all good bookshops, including of course, our book partner, Newman Books. And we hope that you will all order a copy. And interviewing tonight, we have David Wallace-Wells, He's editor-at-large of New York Magazine, and he writes about climate change and the future of uh, technology and science. And he is, of course, the author of The Uninhabitable Earth, which was a hugely influential book in 2019, selected by all the newspapers as book of the year. And it was a wake-up call around the world. So we're very lucky to have them. We have um, 300 people already on the webinar and I think more will be joining us. You can put your questions in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens. And David's gonna try to bring in as many as he can towards the end of our session. We've got an hour. So for now, I will hand over to David and say, welcome. Thank you very, very much for being with us. And over to you.
1: Thank you, Daisy, and thank you all for coming. It's um, a privilege to be doing this in front of you. And Betsy is especially privileged to be talking with you in public. I should say, this isn't the first time we've talked, it's just the first time we're talking in public, but um, really excited to be having the conversation. And I think I, it would be useful to start picking up off of Daisy's introduction of you, which um, sort of uh, stood on top of the masterpiece, The Sixth Extinction, to introduce this book. And to ask you um, sort of briefly in part to orient everyone in the audience who ha- you might not have read the book yet, um, how this book proceeds from that one and to what degree it represents a disjuncture in your thinking, um, but how, you know, how, how the story of that book, which is about you know, the, the large scale um, die off of so many of the um, planet's species um, relates to this one, which is you know, largely about what we're doing in response to that, and maybe exacerbating it along the way, um, how do you see the two works fitting together
2: well um before before I launch into that i wa- I also want to just thank everyone for being here and I want to thank you for being here um, David, because David has a brand new baby, which everyone knows is kind of a big deal, and so I'm going to try to not make this my usual you know unbelievable downer How's that for the sake of a new baby um so this book, I, I, it did follow pretty um, you know, pretty logically in my own mind. I, I don't know about other people's minds. From um, after I wrote The Sixth Extinction, you know, the, the question was sort of, okay, what, what now, you know? And what, what is the world going to do in response to this extraordinary set of changes that we've set in motion, the results of which are pretty evidently, in many cases, um, to the detriment of other species, and increasingly, obviously, to, our, to the detriment of humanity. So what, what happens next? And I, I started to just, you know, being a journalist, as you know, looking for stories that might elucidate um, some aspect of this, I, I actually went sort of the first story that set this project in motion is in the middle of the book. I went to Hawaii to talk to some scientists, in fact, a British scientist uh, who was working in Hawaii by the name of Ruth Gates, who's a really dynamic, charismatic woman who had started this project that had been dubbed the Super Coral Project. And the idea behind the Super Coral Project was we have radically altered the oceans the oceans are warming they're warming really fast Um, and a lot of the co2 that we pour in the atmosphere it goes right straight into the oceans basically and it is changing the ph of the water in the oceans and one group of organisms that does not like these changes is reef building corals so reefs ruth's idea was okay we if we want reefs in the future you know we've already so altered the oceans we're going to have to alter reef building corals which are these tiny gelatinous little animals that build these amazing structures called reefs so this project was designed to sort of hybridize or somehow breed up corals that were going to be more resilient to warmer ocean temperatures it's still continuing and very tragically ruth died a couple years into the project though the project continues Um, and as I said, she was very dynamic and she was very smart and she sort of got me thinking, well, what, what is the future of, you know, you would consider a reef a completely natural ecosystem to the extent that they still exist, and yet they weren't gonna survive without human intervention was sort of her point. And that idea of intervening, again, to correct for previous interventions got me thinking and I started to sort of notice this pattern and that sort of how the book, um, how in my mind the book came to be. So um,
1: one way of thinking then about the project that you engaged in is as a work of sort of present tense contemporary reportage in which you visit and speak with and document a lot of um, human interventions, some large scale, some quite small scale, but in all ways quite dramatic that are essentially aiming to restore or rebalance or stabilize um, environmental systems that have been cast into disarray largely by, if not exclusively by human action um, in the recent past. But I think there's something really interesting um, in what you just said, and what you just repeated from from Ruth Gates in that she offered you a lesson, not just how to think about the present um, and the possible future, but also in how to think about the past, she said, you know, a reef, you think of a reef as a truly natural ecosystem. Um, But one of the things that I found so memorable in the book were the threads um, in which you were documenting the development of the idea of nature through time as evolving in contrast to its own despoilation. Like we think now we're living on the precipice of environmental disaster nature is disappearing or it's being destroyed or it's destroying us, you know, choose your metaphor. Um, But we think of it as this sort of intuitive binary system. There is nature and there is humanity or industrial, you know, capitalism or however you wanna think of it. Um, And one of the things I found most interesting um, was the way in which in your book, you, you sort of sketched a deeper history of these ideas and showed that nature has really only ever been a term that we took seriously and valued as we understood, it was under threat, um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that historical perspective informs your own perspective in thinking about these challenges, um, and maybe maybe the two neat binary patterns that we found find ourselves falling into when we think about when we think about um, intervening in the way that all of your subjects are.
2: Well, sure. I mean, you know, the history of of the concept of nature, obviously, in in is a is a comp- long and complicated one, you know, and I, I should also say that, you know, it, it's inevitably it's, the discussion in the book is sort of, is inevitably somewhat Eurocentric. And I'm sure that people, there are a lot of people who would say, you know, a lot of cultures in, on planet earth, a lot of cultures, obviously we no longer have access to what their views were, but, you know, to the extent that we do Um, they would not have the same sort of European western views of nature that that we do which were sort of inherited you know from the romantics and but this idea of nature you know why, why would you even have an idea of nature except at the point right where you are starting to see humanity separating from nature so I think a lot of our Concepts and once again, these are not like original ideas, people have written you know, vol- in many volumes on this, that we, we are inheritors of this view that, that nature is something apart from us. Um, you know, in wilderness, as Thoreau said, is wilderness lies the salvation of the world. Now, by the time Thoreau wrote Walden, Boston and, and you know, Walden Pond was already being completely deforested for the railroad, and he was very, very aware of that, but doesn't really intrude in the book very much. Um, but those are the ideas of nature that we, we all now have to sort of grapple with. What are we talking about when we talk about nature, which is now we're completely implicated in it, right? We, when you change the climate of the globe, can you really, you know, the end of nature, Bill McKibben's end of nature, that's 30 years old already. Um, can you really speak of a nature that exists apart from humanity? Now, the problem is, or the complexity is, there are many, there's still most of the world or half the world is not human created. This is a very interesting statistic that just recently came out in a big paper in Nature that if you take the weight of all of the human made materials on Earth, and that includes, I should say gravel, so depending on how you want to classify gravel. But if you take the weight of all the human manipulated or made materials, sometime around 2020, that weight equaled the weight of all the biomass on Earth. Okay, So this is the kind of situation we're in. We're now, everything that we have fabricated in some way, or at least um, you know dug up out of the Earth, has the weight of all the biomass on Earth. And that is the sort of weird juncture that we're in, where we're involved in everything, but of course we don't control it. We are just uh, enmeshed in it in ways that we can't really get out of.
1: That sort of sounds like a tipping point. Like we, you know, we reached a balance and then presumably we imagine the future is going to become more dramatic. You know, you know that, that the balance will tip and the human side of the equation or human created side of the equation will be heavier. Um, How How do you see the scale of changes that we're, you know, we're likely to be experiencing over the next few decades? Like when you think about if the book is about people who are trying to um, solve it in local or focused ways, um, the really large problem of this uh, tumult, um, what is the scale of that tumult? Um, Like how much change will we have to reckon with or adapt to how different will the world be and how much more will it require of us to live comfortably on it than say we might've expected a few decades ago? Like how, categorically, how should we be thinking? How do you think about um, just what scale of a challenge um, this project of learning to live in this new world um, as it continues to change? How big a project is that? Well, it's it's
2: immense. I mean, that, is the problem that you keep bumping up to the scale of the of the problem because the scale of the problem is equivalent to the scale of the effort that we've put into this project of changing the planet you know and so if you cast even if you say well you know this world changing project which often goes by the shorthand you know the the anthropocene or the anthropocene as i've heard it pronounced in England. Um, even if you say it's only dates from the post-war period from 1950, let's say, so we've only been at it for 70% for 70 years. As, as you yourself have so you know, eloquently written, we've poured half of the CO2 in history into the atmosphere just in the last 30 years. You know, so, so we are really ramping up our impacts really fast. And if you wanted to deal with the scale of the carbon problem, this is you know, sort of the fundamental question, I suppose. So if you want to decarbonize the economy, for example, just to take that as one example, that effort has to be on the scale of all of the carbon infrastructure that's been built you know, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So it's always scale. Uh, that,
1: and that's just the decarbonization project, not even the adaptation part of it. Yeah,
2: exactly. So, the scale is what keeps. I mean, so there's a chapter in the book uh, to give a concrete example. I went to, um, you know, visit some of my carbon emissions in Iceland, where a company that is, um, has a machine, machines that do direct air capture, they suck, they literally suck CO2 out of the air, they just take ambient air. They take the co2 out of it um, if you stand you know behind these machines it's like standing in a you know sort of pre-industrial uh, atmosphere um, and then they take this carbon and they shove it very deep underground in iceland where there's a lot you know where it's just completely volcanic rock it reacts it mineralizes it's a very cool process okay and you think to yourself well that is that is cool you know let's start getting co2 out of the air and then you think of the scale at which that would have to be accomplished we've you know poured roughly 2 trillion tons of co2 into the atmosphere since the start of the industrial revolution so to get that back out you need to do you know another you need to do 2 trillion tons in the reverse direction and you need once again an infrastructure on the scale of the fossil fuel infrastructure we have right now. So scale is what always, uh, with every single one of these, or I shouldn't say every single one, but almost all of these problems and, um, potential solutions fixes, um, is the issue scale has got to be commensurate with the problem. And the problem is the size of the earth
1: was just reading, a, um, there was a recent report I was reading about um, direct air capture and in which they estimated that just to, you know, sort of solve for the hardest to decarbonize emissions, you know, the, the vast majority of things, we, we have a pretty good idea of how we can get rid of them. There's a problem of politics, a problem of deployment, but we have, we sort of have the know-how, but there's a sliver where, where we don't we don't know anymore. We don't know yet how to do that. And to just do a direct air capture to sort of, um, you know, solve for those emissions, they estimated would um, require... A third of today's global energy use um, and then if you imagine you building into that equation all of the delay um all of the you know the slow movement that we've, we've done on decarbonization and all the sectors that we know how to decarbonize it just makes the the project um grow and grow and grow and grow um and you know i think my own sense is you know as, as you write in the book some of this is is going to have to happen we're going to have to figure out some ways of doing it but it is still just terrifyingly large as a project um, and thinking about, and and as, because it's so large, therefore quite, um, pr- will quite profoundly shape the experience of the people on the planet uh, over the next decades, even if we, even if we get it right.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, no, no, go ahead.
1: I was just gonna, you know, you, um, I, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about your book, but to me, the sort of central um, idea to the extent that there is a sort of, thrust, an idea thrust in the book, and that you're, you're a very careful journalist who doesn't do that all that explicitly, uh, unlike me. Um, but it's when you say that, you know, we're sort of we're sort of past the point, I don't have the book in front of me, but we're sort of past the point in which we can entertain ideas of returning to the, to the past that we're hoping to preserve. And we're now at a point when, if there's going to be a solution to the problem of control, it's going to be more control, more interventions of the kind that you're documenting in the book. And that made me think of the sort of famous Stuart Brand line, what is it like? We are as gods, we might as well get good at it. Um, and I wonder, you know, if there's a solution to control, it's gonna be more control. We are as gods, we might as well get good at it. And some level those contain the same idea. And in other ways they suggest a very different um, sort of temperamental perspective on, on the project of these kinds of interventions. And I wonder just sort of explicitly like Do you think we can get good at this? Like, do you think we're capable of um, large scale interventions to stabilize and secure um, at least uh, the aspects of the planet's systems that we depend on um, and expect to depend on going forward? What does success look like? And like, how will we know if we're doing well?
2: Well, I mean, honestly, that's the question at the center of the book, you know, I, 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 I mean, Stir Brand started out back in the 60s saying, We are as gods and we might as well get good at it. And he's recently said, We are as gods and we have to get good at it. And many people have responded to that. You know, I, I quote Ed Wilson, who says, We're, we're not gods, we're you know, basically stone age humans, you know, uh, just walking around with these incredible technologies. And Paul Kingsnorth, who's a you know very interesting writer, I think, who says you know we are as gods and we're really really bad at it. You know we're the gods of destruction, and I think that question. And I do want to say that that you're the quote from the book, you know, if there's going to be an answer, that's a big if. Okay? And but I think it's our. It's our predilection. That's where that's where we look for solutions, and that's where we're going to increasingly look for solutions because we don't have a lot of great options. And the option of turning around, um, which I think is very attractive and emotionally, is what I personally am drawn to as a you know child of the '70s, um, is not really viable. And that was sort of Ruth Gates' point to go back to, you know, Ruth look. People want to go back to the reefs of the past, as if we've, we just stop doing what we're doing, uh, reefs will come back. And this really sad and tragic truth is, you know, the oceans are going to continue to warm up really for centuries now. That's been set, you know, kind of in motion. And there's no getting that heat out without really radical interventions, which we could talk about, <laughs> or not another set of really radical interventions, uh, to cool the planet down. And so, we're just in a jam, we're, we're in a terrible jam, you know, and we can, there are, I think there's a big movement, you know, should we put it, Joe Biden has talked about putting aside 30% of the U.S. by 2030, you know, can we just put parts of the earth aside for other creatures? I think that that is the closest we could get to sort of preserving things. They won't be the same because the climate will have changed and all the species that were in one place are gonna to move to another. But if you wanna to try to get as many creatures through the period that we're in, through this century, through the next couple of centuries, that would be the closest I can think of, or anyone I think has think, thought of, to, to do that. Everything else requires you know, human beings Thinking this through and trying to impose on this tangle of human and man-made, you know, this com- combined human and natural system, which is now the entire entirety of planet Earth, trying to think through some solution uh, and impose it on what is not a logical system. What is not a system that was brought together logically it was a system that evolved over you know, billions of years.
1: Yeah, and there are problems even with the sort of um, the ideal approach that you're talking about, setting aside huge chunks of the planet. Um, you know, I, I was recently reading a paper suggesting that, you know, many of the world's um, uh, forests could turn from what are called carbon sinks, which absorb carbon to carbon sources, which produce it um, as soon as in the next couple of decades, which is just one small indication, although it's in it's, it's a certain way kind of overwhelming of um, you know, how, how little we can rely on the natural systems that we imagine in our head to continue in the way that we imagine they will continue in the absence of human intervention. That um, the disruption is so large scale and complicated that you know even if we did say set aside 30% of the earth's surface or even 50% of the earth's surface, those ecosystems are not gonna be the same ones that were around in the 17th century. And the forest one in particular really stuck with me just because I think especially for someone like me, who's a really a lifelong urbanite who doesn't have so much direct experience with nature. I still think of the forest as this sort of like idyllic and iconic place of retreat from, from the Anthropocene into a place of deep time and kind of natural harmony. And it strikes me as really not just scary, but disorienting to think that um, within my own lifetime, it may be the case that those systems are wrecking more havoc on the earth's um, climate than they are even helping in its solution and the way that that destabilizes our relationship to the natural world I think is is very much an open question which is another thing that you're exploring in the book um, in talking about people who are thinking in more creative ways about and beyond the sort of simple binary um, and trying to trying to make a difference in their in their own in their own fields in their own ways um, so I I always bristle when people like ask me questions about optimism and pessimism. And I say like, you know, climate change is not a matter of mood affiliation. It's like whether I'm feeling happy one day or sad the next day doesn't change the actual trajectory of the story. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit as a way of sort of illustrating a few more particular anecdotes and stories from your book, like as you've been doing this reporting, what were some of the things that you found most eye-opening and encouraging? And what were some of the things that you found most Distressing um, or discouraging in thinking about, you know, the big question: whether we can get good at this, good, good enough at this, to really stabilize and secure a relatively happy future for ourselves.
2: Well, one, one, you know, the sort of center of the book, at the center of the book, are is this extraordinary new um, capacity that we've just developed over the last couple of decades, but that is really. Um, been taken to a new level just in the last decade, which is gene editing. So gene editing, I, it, for the book, um, to, tell, to tell a gene editing story, I actually ordered a kit, a gene editing kit. You can order from a company in California, um, which provides you with the wherewithal to gene edit some bacteria uh, in your own kitchen And I made, and I believe I actually did, gene edit some bacteria to be antibiotic resistant, which was pretty extraordinary um, when you think about it, because I am, you know, know nothing about gene editing. Now, also for the book, I went to visit some people who do know a lot about gene editing and were using this newfound suite of techniques that just go by the acronym CRISPR to gene edit cane toads in Australia so cane toads are this you know extraordinary invasive species in in Australia they were brought supposedly they were going to help with the beetles that were eating the sugarcane crop in the 30s 1930s they went crazy they had no predators they've taken over coastal Australia basically though they are still increasing their territory every year and the problem is they're in addition to just being huge and voracious eaters they're highly toxic so Australia's native wildlife chomps on them um, and dies. Uh, and so does, you know, sort do people's puppies. Uh, and so on occasion do people, but, but very rarely. Um, so they were trying to gene edit these toads just as a sort of exercise to be less toxic. And they had succeeded in creating. I saw some toads that were less toxic. And in theory, if you put them out onto the, into the you know countryside, they and they bred with other toads. You could also you could also potentially, in theory, again you could you could gene edit them with something called a gene drive so that you would push this trait out into the population, and all toads eventually would have it. Once again, in theory. Um, now, how you feel about that? How you feel about our now using CRISPR, for example, to try to deal with um, problems that we ourselves have created, you know, messing around with life at its most intimate level, in the level of the genome, I think is going to be a huge issue going forward because there are um, many potential problems that could be solved. And here's another uh, example I will give. Um, I went to visit some chestnut trees, American chestnut trees that have been gene edited, they have a one gene tweak. Um, and so they're resistant to chestnut blight, which was a pathogen brought to, this, to the US from Asia in the early part of the 20th century, killed every single chestnut tree, uh, basically in America, four billion trees. Um, so where I live in New England, you would have found like every fourth tree was a chestnut. Now there are zero. So this tweaked tree is, is resistant to the blight, um, it's sitting in fenced-in plots because it has, doesn't it's not allowed out yet, although that permitting process is happening even as we speak, and so maybe it will be allowed out. How do people feel about that? Would we rather have genetically tweaked chestnuts or would we rather have no chestnuts? And these, this question, I think, is going to keep coming up. We're going to keep having, being faced with that choice. Do we, do we go forward here with some of these technologies that we consider intrinsically um very nervous making and even maybe anathema um or do we say or it, it when that's a potentially the only choice uh to save certain species and as i say increasing numbers of species and i think that's going to be huge now do i find that help, hopeful? um i if given the opportunity, I would plant one of these chestnut trees in my backyard. How's that? Now, does that give me hope? Or does that say, well, that's just a small, you know, stay against uh, the oblivion of the American chestnut tree? I'm not sure. And I'm not sure how I feel about, you know, gene editing everything uh, from here on in. Um, But I think that's an interesting question that really you know, brings home this very difficult choice; these very difficult choices that we're confronted with.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. You started your you at the end. You said how you felt, but you actually opened your discussion that by saying, "How do people feel about that?"
2: <laughs> well, I mean, the good, you know, I quote one scientist um, in the book who's talking about solar geo- geoengineering, which we can talk about, and he says, "You know, we don't get to decide. Scientists don't get to decide, and journalists don't get to decide either." and you know, it, it, it's a bit, maybe a bit of a, of a cop out to say, well, I, I don't get to decide, therefore I don't need to decide. But, you know, these are big public policy questions that are going to be answered or not answered. You know, a lot of them are just being not answered because we're going on, we're too busy worrying about other things. But to, one day when we turn our attention to them, they will have to be answered either through you know, incredibly um, complicated and uh, global negotiations or by someone just doing something, someone just releasing something, for example, a gene edited organism, you know, a gene drive organism out into the world that then either successfully solves a problem or, you know, wreaks total havoc.
1: You were just touching on a little bit like the, your role as a journalist, how you see yourself and how um, how that lines up or doesn't line up with the sort of moral complexities. And um, I don't know exactly how to put it, but it's you know it's not like you're in charge of making this decision anyway. Um, and I wondered if you could talk just for a minute a little bit about how you see that, a little more about how you see your own role. You know, when I when I think of you, I think, you know, obviously you're, you know, sort of brilliant, um, really consequential, um, towering above everyone else in our field of your generation. But you're also in this line at The New Yorker that goes back to Bill McKibben and goes back to Rachel Carson, um, both of whom were writing about um, some of these same issues in much more um, direct, exhortative ways. And you have found your path and your voice um, as more of a, a traditionally journal, traditional journalistic storyteller, I would say. Um, you know your, your books have some clear meaning and certainly many many people have read the sixth extinction and um, felt the real impact of being sort of pummeled by the facts that it contains and and the future that it sort of um, foretells but it's that's not you're not doing that punching so directly you know it's you're letting the stories tell themselves and I wonder how you think about that especially in a time when um, you know nature writing is no longer like the the Uh, province of dilettantes it is like an unbelievably urgent political and moral question and um, why do you why do you write about these issues in the way that you do how do you see how do you how do you think about your own role and to the extent that this book is which I think it is to some degree um, a somewhat more explicit statement of principles especially on geoengineering which we can talk about in a minute how do you are are you feeling yourself evolving or do you am I wrong in reading that (laughs)
2: how do you see it? Um, no, I, I mean, I think that I, the more, you know, the more you, the more you travel down this path of, of sort of, and I'm sure that you have had, well, I don't want to speak for you. I'll turn the question around at the end of this, but you know, the less you see, you know, I would be honestly, well, I'll I'll say two things. First of all, it's simply, you know, it gets to a matter of taste in a way. I mean, I, I think, you know, there are a lot of polemics around and, and a good polemic is a, is a great thing. And I really, you know, um, enjoy a good polemic as much as a next person. But I do think that um, one of the things that I was certainly trying to do with the sixth extinction and am also trying to do with this book is get around. I think people are, you know, defended against polemics to a certain extent. And I, no, this sounds very odd. Of course, given the heaviness of the topics we've just been talking about, but I really wanted um, this book, you know, Under a White Sky, to be fun, and for people to read it and say that that was actually fun, even though you know a lot of the topics are very heavy. And so I, it's even funny. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's a dark comedy. We are in a dark comedy. You know, it has may have many, many, many tragic effects. But the basic structure is kind of darkly comic. Um, you know, I use a, a selection from the cat in the hat comes back. You know, it, it, that's the situation. We're, we're just a bunch of, you know, living through a kind of bumblers. It just just so happens that at stake is, you know, the survival of the planet and our own survival. But that doesn't mean that a lot of it isn't pretty comical. Um, so, part of, so part of it is a matter of taste. And, and also part of it is 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 genuinely the more you know you know the less clear the solutions are they really are not clear okay i am sure you can appreciate that more than just about anyone what is the answer what is the quote unquote answer to climate change now whichever direction you go in uh let's say you even go in well let's just stop burning all fossil fuels now that's a that's a good idea i i'm totally behind that but um it does raise a lot of very serious global equity questions, right? After, you know, the US and Europe and to an increasing extent China have, you know, taken up all the space, as it were, in the atmosphere for CO two emissions, can we now really turn around and say to the Indians, to the Africans, to the South Americans, you really can't burn any fossil fuels, and everyone has to be on board for this. And that is um very hard to imagine it's very hard to even imagine that that's going to happen and even if developing countries were on board it's very hard to imagine how petro states are going to be on board right it's very hard to imagine how the russians are going to be on board so we're in a really big you know jam up so then if you say well okay we're going to have to come up with some other answer um and be that carbon dioxide removal which we've discussed or be it even solar geoengineering which seems like you know on some level the worst possible idea except perhaps for all other ideas so that is the complexity of the situation and so there i don't want to be you know falsely modest here but i genuinely don't know what the solutions are so it would be kind of crazy for me to try to tell everyone else what they are i am exploring what very smart people would tell you the only solutions are. How's that?
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's, um, I, I think it's useful. We'll probably go to questions from the audience in a minute, but I think it is useful to dwell for a couple minutes, um, on solar geoengineering. Cause that is in a certain way, like the, the rub of it, like nobody's going to object to tinkering with some, you know, some corals to get them to live <laughs> a little better in the water. That's not, there isn't moral hazard there. Um, but, um, know a lot of people in the climate movement find um even some of measures like like the um the tree genetic engineering you're describing even that involves a bit of moral hazard in that it's sort of telling us that it's all going to be okay and that we don't need to move as quickly as we we thought we did in order to live comfortably in the future but certainly when it comes to um, a large-scale intervention um quite dramatic like solar geoengineering there are a lot of folks who think it's dangerous to even be studying it, talking about it, floating it as a possibility, debating it, taking it seriously. Um, and, and yet as a result, um, you know, I, I think we have a, a much narrower sense of what it would do to the planet than we would if we had been much more open about that. Um, how do you balance in your own mind those considerations and how did you think about that you know, not just the moral hazard problem of solar geoengineering, but the moral hazard problem of being a journalist writing about solar geoengineering and balancing those <laughs> considerations in, um, in in writing about this. Because I think for a lot of your readers, um, you know, this is some, your, your writing on this subject is is the first time that they've encountered this, um, this project possibility, um, however you want to refer to it. And yeah, how, how do you think of it? And, and how did you want to, uh shape the books in, in particular the books discussion of the subject um
2: well i i'm gonna i i should start by just explaining what solar geoengineering no. is um so solar oh, ge- be
1: in there at some point please first say what it is
2: okay so 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 solar geoengineering is this idea that you know we've we've loaded the atmosphere up with carbon dioxide uh as discussed it's really hard to get it back out again it's it it it's not like other pollutants it tends unfortunately to hang around for a very long time. So once it's up there, it's gonna to continue to warm the earth for a very long time. Um, and if you wanted to do something to, you know, fix climate change or solve climate change or reverse climate change, all these words that are used, there's really nothing you can do in a human lifetime kind of time scale, except in theory, uh, counter one kind of intervention with another kind of intervention by throwing up some kind of reflective materials. It could either be it's sulfur dioxide is one thing that's mentioned, calcium carbonate. Anyway, we don't need to talk about the details. You throw it up into the stratosphere using specially built planes and it would create this stratospheric haze, which is what you get after volcanic eruptions that would reflect sunlight back to earth, back to space, I'm sorry. And that would have a cooling effect just as you get after major volcanic eruptions you'd have to keep doing it because this stuff falls out of the stratosphere after a couple of years. So you'd have to keep injecting it into the stratosphere. Now this raises, and this is purely theoretical, you know, not a single um, test has been done, although we can get to the fact that people would like to run the first test before a test this summer, actually. Um, and it sounds like the craziest possible idea, I think. Um, and it, it probably is, and it has a huge, as, as you suggested, it has a huge moral hazard problem associated with it, and I think that what I wanted with the book, and it's the last chapter of the book, it's how the book gets its title, because one of the potential side effects of doing this would be to change the appearance of the sky, to make the sky whiter. And what I wanted to convey in the book was a sense of, um, you know, sort of respectful horror, you know, these are projects and sort of the book sort of takes you along through projects that you might say, Oh, that's okay. Tinkering with corals. That's okay. Tinkering with chestnut trees. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. And then we get to this sort of, the big one at the end, is that okay? You know? But everywhere along the way, there are, are really, really um, hard choices. And even with geoengineering, I, I think it is important to be honest about it and to say, we may have made such a mess of the world that maybe that is our best option. I mean, these are all uh, questions somewhat above my pay grade, but which I do think, to which I do think people need to be thinking about. And one of the scientists that I quote you know, in the book who says, you know, if we don't talk about it, if you think if we don't talk about it, there's not going to be you know, government research on this, military research on this even. Um, you know, if you think we can prevent that from happening, you're just being naive. And I, I think that's true. I think there's a certain naivete to that view.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I know some people who've done work in this area who are sure that there are experiments already going on around the world that we just don't happen to know about. It, you know, it seems somewhat logical that's... that like, Saudi Arabia may be trying to figure out how to buy some more time for their, for their oil business. You know.
2: Yes, I mean, a small scale, it's quite possible. I don't think anything very large scale. I mean, small scales have gone on already, very bad experiments, very inept experiments. Um, but, you know, look, we know, for example, and I don't want to make villains of the Chinese at all, but, you know, we know that they're doing weather modification experiments, you know, new generation of weather modification. Now, weather modification is um, not supposed to be allowed under a UN treaty. and you know, geoengineering should not be allowed under UN treaty, but, you know, when the world is up against it, uh, what are they, what are we going to do? That, I think, um, is that a moral hazard to raise that? I, I don't know. I think I would take, I would have taken that argument a lot more seriously 20 years ago, but even as, you know, news about and Climate change and the effects of climate change have become more and more apparent. Once again, to go back um, to your great book, you know, we just sat there and did, uh, you know, and dump more and more CO two into the air. So it's hard to see, you know, a moral hazard has to have something, some resistance. I don't even see the resistance here, you know.
1: So I think it should be um, with fifteen minutes left. We should move on to audience questions, um, and the first one comes from. Uh, Rupert Reed hey Rupert um, he um, this came from he, he wrote this earlier on in the conversation so yet he, he asked um, hasn't nature also also been a Janus based concept um, something other than human emerges as a concept when it comes under threat but nature has also for the longest time been a concept that includes humans and he asks doesn't it make sense for us to see nature as both including and excluding us and maybe another way of putting that is um, you know, one lesson of the recent past is that nature, as we conceive of it, is a fiction, which we have already left behind. But may, would it not be, is it not more important for us to remember that even if we are leaving behind that natural world, we are still also a part of the natural world? Is that lesson not, um, you know, m- might, that, might that lesson be both more important and maybe harder for at least people in places like the UK and the US to to relearn?
2: No, I, I think that is really. And I mean, you know, maybe, maybe climate change will deliver that message. I mean, if you're in the path of a, you know, category five hurricane, uh, you, you realize that we are very, very much, um, you know, at the mercy of nature. It may be nature that has been um manipulated or influenced by humans, but it's still beyond our control. And I think that that is, you know, one of the interesting facts about the situation that we are in. We are imbricated in all of these systems, but we're not in control of them. And that's actually, you know, the heart of the, of the matter. If we could control the climate, we would be in a lot better shape, but we are just um, changing it without being in control of it. And, you know, everything that we eat, everything, all the oxygen that we breathe, everything is a result of a biological system that we have also, once again, very heavily tried to put our thumb on that. Um, certainly agriculture is, you know, one of the biggest changes to the earth uh, that it's ever seen. Um, but it's still, you know, biology. Uh, so, yes, absolutely. And you sometimes also get the pushback. Well, human, you know, h- humans are natural. Obviously, we're a product of, you know, 3.5 billion years of evolution, just like everything else. So, you know, if we decide to put sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere. Isn't that just natural too? You know, now that, at that point, it seems to me that, that it's the terminology that has broken down. Maybe we need, you know, new terms that seems to be, um, that's at that point, the concept of nature seems to be somewhat meaningless. So I don't, I don't have a good answer for that, but definitely, um, I do think actually you know, precisely because many of us do live in parts of the world where na- nature—the na- you know—there's that great project. I'm sure you're aware of it, David, but many, many of our listeners are not. This Manhattan project to you know recreate Manhattan, New York, before you know the Dutch arrived. Um, I think people were completely blown away by that. You know, but it's like, what did they think? <laughs> what did they think was here? You know, it was sort of hilarious.
1: Yeah, just concrete streets with nobody walking.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's always been like that, yeah.
1: Um, so Rosie is asking about um, the risk, you know, which we've talked a bit about moral hazard, but she's asking about a slightly different risk, the risk that if we rely on adaptation and some of these interventions that your book describes, um, not just that we put off the decarbonization that's necessary, but that we also perpetuate the inequalities that are being imposed on the world by climate change—is um, there anything that you've worked on, reported on, seen that comes from that zone, comes from the zone of sort of human intervention, but it is aimed not just at restoring natural ecosystems and um, protecting species, but actually undoing some of the, um, you know, some of the, some of the structural inequalities of the sort of carbon economy that we live in?
2: Well, there, there, you know, there are a lot of people, you know, writing about this right now. It is a very um, active subject of conversation, I think, in the academic world, at least. For example, you know, one way to take carbon out of the air, and many people would say the best way to do it is just is plant a lot of trees, right? And you plant a lot of trees, um, and you will suck up carbon as the trees grow. Trees, you know, take up carbon. As they grow, the problem is that when they die, they give that carbon up again. But in the time that, that a new forest is growing, it's taking up a lot of carbon. And so one question is, you know, could can people become basically carbon farmers? Is there a whole economy that could allow both, you know, regeneration of forests and also allow transfer of wealth? You know, you could pay people to do this. Um, so that's one you know, avenue to, of, of one topic of discussion, but the, the very basic question that, you know, the world is fundamentally profoundly unequal. And some people, some of us have contributed way, way, way more to the problem than, than others. And the, and the others may well be the people to suffer first and foremost from the problems. I don't know that you know to address that requires. Um, well, on some level, there's no way to address that now because some you know the da- but the damage that's been done. Um, to address it going forward, I think uh, is where we are driven to some of these radical solutions. Honestly, um, because. if you do want the developing world to be able to develop, you know, how are you going to make space for that? And in fact, uh, there's a book by a science, pretty famous American science fiction writer that's out just recently called The Ministry for the Future, which begins with India um, launching a a geoengineering, a round of geoengineering to protect its people. Um, So you get pretty quickly, I think, into some pretty interesting Possible geopolitical issues that are don't necessarily fall along the lines that 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 we sitting here tonight think they should fall. How's that?
1: Well, connected to that discussion um, is this question from Catherine. I hope I'm pronouncing her last name right. Budget Meakin, um, and she refers to Bill Gates's new book and says that you know in his discussion of the um, path forward, he somewhat ducks out from the politics involved. Um, and you know, relies more on the sort of like, if I were the, you know, if I were in charge, <laughs> this is how we could get there. Um, and you know, I think my own sense is that that's hugely, hugely important. Perhaps more important than a lot of the questions of technology and um, energy. And I wonder how you see that evolving. You know, we have a different political consciousness about climate change now than we did a few years ago. In part because of a lot of the protest movements and yet you know things are moving I think much more slowly than most people who are pushing for action would would um, be happy with um where do you see the politics going I you know I guess there are a few different ways you could answer the question at the national level at the geopolitical level but um you know how do we how do we you know this is not just a technological problem it's not just a scientific problem it's also in some very profound way a political one and how how can we think through those naughty problems and, and try to find
2: some happy and helpful path forward? Well, I mean, to give, to give Bill Gates credit, you know, I, I think what he was trying to do in that book is say, look, people are going to do, you know, in, in the world that we currently live in, they're going to do what's cheapest and most convenient, and this is true at a at a grand scale, right? So, you know, if you created energy systems that were genuinely um, cheaper than the fossil fuel infrastructure that we have right now, um, there would still be huge vested interests that would be, you know, invested in keeping maintaining the status quo, and that's a huge political problem. Uh, I'm in no way minimizing that political problem, but precisely, for example, for the developed world—I mean, for parts of the world which have no electricity right now—if you created an electrical system that was cheaper than, you know, building a power plant uh, that burned, you know, natural gas or coal, that would be absolutely in the int- best interests of any, you know, developing economy. And so that, I think. know to give him credit i think that is what he is pushing for that these constant political battles you know we've been having COP. you know we're about to have cop 26 you know uh in in the uk um and it's going to lead to exactly the same thing (laughs) that every other cop has led to which is you know some progress on paper but on the ground we don't get the kind of progress that we need Um, why don't we get the kind of progress that we need well, in part, it is, you know, vast, entrenched interests. And in part, it is actually that this is actually hard. It's very hard to live the way we live and have eight, almost 8 billion people live, the, who and many of whom would like a better standard of living uh, than they have right now and deserve a better standard of living than they have right now. It's very hard to provide the energy for that society uh, without fossil fuels, it's just very hard. Um, so it's doable, but it's really, really hard. And I think that that is, um, I think that there are all sorts of levels of resistance here from the very local, where are you gonna site these projects to the global? You know, Who has to go first and who has to um, pay for it? Because right now there is a cost to a lot of these things as opposed to a net gain. So, um, you know, once again, if I had the answers to like how we're gonna solve the political problems here, I truly would be king of the world. And I would deserve to be king of the world because these are, I don't wanna say they're intractable, but you know, climate change has been called a, a wicked hard problem. And it I think that that is true.
1: Well, I think that that's um, probably a nice place to end. Um, Betsy, it's really been lovely speaking with you about your brilliant, book. And um, I'm glad that we got in some time for audience questions. I think they were really sharp too, and um, was really glad to hear you answering all of them so well. Um, And I want to thank you guys all for coming and and listening to us and um, thanks again for, um, you know, for, for the host for hosting.